Well, I want to start today's uh, message in John chapter 6. So if you would, please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Once again, that's John chapter 6. Now, of course, John 6 is not our text from this morning, as you can see in your bulletin. That's technically Matthew 23, 13 to 15. So we're not going to spend a whole lot of time in John 6. However, there's something that happens here that illustrates a point that I think is going to be very helpful for today's discussion. So uh, that's kind of going to be where we start this morning, John 6. We're going to be in verses 22 to 35 in particular. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, John 6, 22. Our text for this morning, again, uh, technically speaking, is Matthew 23, 13 to 15. Now I say technically speaking because we're not going to actually spend a lot of time in that text this morning. Instead, we're going to be discussing the implications of that text. Uh, If you've been with us over the past few weeks, then you already know that we've explored the meaning of this passage. A couple of weeks ago, you'll you'll recall that this passage, Matthew 23, 13 to 15, occurs in the aftermath of this challenge that has been brought against Jesus by the religious authorities in the temple on Tuesday of Passion Week. Uh, By Tuesday of Passion Week, the crowds have welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem with open arms. Jesus has cleansed the temple and performed these incredibly powerful messianic signs right there in what is perhaps the most public place in all of Jerusalem. Uh, The religious leaders, of course, don't like any of this. And so by the time that Jesus returns to the temple on Tuesday, they have this coalition assembled to challenge His authority. They then proceed to ask Jesus the series of theological questions, all of which are designed to discredit Jesus. Jesus not only answers every single question they bring, but he does so. He does it uh, in that process. He does it so well that he actually exposes their hard heartedness. So by the time we get to Matthew twenty three, that's where we're at. Jesus has just answered the series of challenges by the religious leaders. Well, in the aftermath of that victory, while the memory of the religious leaders' hard heartedness is still evident and fresh on everyone's mind, Jesus seizes the opportunity, and he makes one last attempt to free the crowds from their corrupt influence with this incredibly harsh invective, which publicly denounces their leadership. That's the basic content of Matthew 23. And Jesus really begins this denunciation by describing the effect of their hypocrisy in verses 13 to 15, saying, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. What's so dangerous about the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees? Why is it that Jesus seems to so consistently speak against their leadership so harshly? Again, Jesus gives the answer right there in verses 13 to 15. He explains that their teaching shut people out of the kingdom of heaven. In fact, they didn't just shut people out of the kingdom, but they effectively locked them out and threw away the key. This is what Jesus means when he says that they made their proselytes twice as much a child of hell as themselves. He's saying saying that they've made their proselytes' second state worse than the first. They're worse off after their so-called conversion than they were before it. In fact, as hard as it's going to be for the scribes and Pharisees to repent, it appears that it's going to be even harder for their proselytes to repent. They're worse off in that sense. This, we've said, is the danger of false religion. It essentially inoculates a person to the gospel. That is to say, it gives people enough religion, it gives them enough truth to make them think that they're saved, but not enough to actually bring them to repentance. 
And unfortunately, this effectively seals them in their unbelief. This type of proselyte, of course, is going to no longer seek salvation. After all, they believe they've already found it. So they stop looking for the truth. And then, even when the truth finds them, when it shows up on their doorstep, even then they, re- they reject it. And they reject it because the religious leaders have already warned them about that teaching, and they've told them that it's a lie. Like the crowds could see the miracles that Jesus is performing, and they could perceive the power and authority of His teaching, but they turned it down. Because the scribes and the Pharisees told them that He was a false teacher empowered by Satan. False religion shuts a person out of the kingdom in that sense. In fact, it sometimes even causes a person to turn away, not because they intend to reject the truth, but because they think they've already accepted it. You've probably seen this before. You go to share the gospel with someone, and their response is, yeah, yeah, I know that, I believe that. And they'll say this even when you know, even when you know from your conversations with them or through some other means that they don't know the gospel, that they haven't believed. The problem is that they've heard enough to think they're saved, and so now they won't even listen to what you have to say because they think they've already heard it when they haven't, and that they're already in the kingdom when they aren't. This is how false religion works. Just like a vaccine will inoculate a person to a a particular disease by giving them enough of of the disease to build up their immunity without actually making them sick. So also there are many false gospels and false religions out there that will do the exact same thing spiritually. And of course, we discussed all this a couple weeks back. That's the meaning of Matthew 23, 13 to 15. And so now what we're doing is we're discussing the implications of this passage. And the way that we're doing this is by discussing false gospels. We're in a highly churched area, and while this means that we're very likely to run into the true gospel here where we live, it also means that we're going to encounter many false gospels. And we've seen that's kind of how Satan works. Wherever the true gospel is proclaimed, He is going to be trying to undermine its influence through the proliferation of false gospels. So we can expect that there are many false gospels that surround us. And this means that we of all people need to be especially sensitive to false gospels. We need to know what they are and we need to know how they can deceive us. So that's what we're doing here in this series. We're spending time discussing the implications of Matthew 23, 13-15 by taking a look at the false gospels that are prevalent in our area. We're exploring what they are, what makes them appealing, what their weaknesses are, and we're doing this in order to ask ourselves, and I want to make this clear, we're asking this of ourselves, have I been influenced by one of these false gospels? Have I trusted in a false gospel for my salvation? Or perhaps even, have I allowed a false gospel to infiltrate my thinking, to affect my sanctification as a Christian? We've looked at two of these false gospels last week. I said that by my count, there's a total of somewhere around nine false gospels that I think are prevalent in our part of the country. And I would divide those false gospels into two groups. You have goal-oriented false gospels. These are the false gospels that are trying to sell you a knockoff gospel at full price. So like you're buying a Rolex, you think you're buying a Rolex watch, and so you pay for that, so to speak, thinking you're getting a Rolex, but really you're just getting a cheap imitation that's going to break down in a couple weeks' time. That's one category of false gospels. And then you have means-oriented false gospels as well. These sell the right product, but they sell it at the wrong price. So like, they're selling you an actual Rolex, but at three times the markup. Or they're selling you an actual Rolex, but at a quarter of the suggested retail price, because it's stolen. (laughs) The idea is that it's the right product, but wrong price. It's false in that sense. 
We looked at two goal-related false gospels last week. These were the prosperity gospel and the soft prosperity gospel. Both these gospels we saw sell a false brand of personal thriving or fulfillment that Jesus never actually intended to sell himself. Both of them are very, they very much set the hope of the gospel in this life when Jesus actually encourages his disciples to basically lose this life for the sake of the next one. Well, today we're going to continue to look at some of these goal-oriented false gospels. But before we do that, I want to point out something that happens here in John 6 that I think is going to prepare us for that discussion. And once again, the passage is John 6, 22-35. And what we're about to read comes after the feeding of the 5,000. The night before this passage, Jesus takes five small barley loaves of bread and just two fish, what appears to really be a young boy's sack lunch, effectively. And he uses it to miraculously feed 5,000 people in a single sitting. It's one of the most powerful signs of Jesus' ministry. In fact, apart from his resurrection from the dead, this is the only miracle by Jesus that all four gospel writers record. You know how I've said before that Jesus' messianic identity wasn't something that was always real evident to the crowds. Well, this miracle so powerfully points to Jesus' messianic identity that the crowds actually tried to seize Jesus and make him king by force. I mean, they're ready to go, on, to, to go after the feeding of the 5,000. They're not hesitating. They're not really wondering about who Jesus is at this point. They're all in. And yet Jesus won't let them do it. And when you stop to think about it, that's really strange. I mean, throughout his ministry, it seems like Jesus is trying to get the crowds to believe in him, Right? Well, then here's this point where it seems like they're doing that. They're actually even to the point where they're trying to coronate him as their king by force. And then Jesus withdraws and he pulls away and won't let them do it. And why is that so? We see the answer here in John 6, 22 to 35. And John says this. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it, is, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here, I just want to make a simple point that I think is going to help set us up for how we need to be thinking about these other false gospels as we continue to ask ourselves, in what gospel have I believed? 
Now, during the night that Jesus, uh, in, in this passage, uh, during the night, Jesus crosses over the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum, literally even walking on water to get there. Now, this crowd pursues him. They show up the next day seeking Jesus, and they're kind of curious about how Jesus got there. I mean, it appears that the disciples left in the boat for Capernaum while Jesus was still dismissing the crowds, and yet here it is the next day, and Jesus is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum with his disciples. The crowds want to know how he did that. How did he beat them to the other side without any apparent means of crossing the sea? And what does Jesus say? He, in a sense, he doesn't really answer their question. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Now, can you see what's happening here? They're asking Jesus about this apparent sign that he's performed during the night. And Jesus says, look, let's not kid ourselves. I know why you're here. I know why you're asking me this question. You want me to do it again. You want me to give you more bread. He says, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. That seems strange for Jesus to say, right? You're not after the signs when they're coming to Capernaum because of what they saw with the feeding of the 5,000. But but you get the point here, don't you? Jesus is saying, you're not after the meaning of the signs. You're not after what the signs point to. You're after the effect. You're after what the signs produced. This is what he means by you're not after signs. He's saying you're not after what the signs mean, only what they gave to you. Don't do that, Jesus says. Don't just look for bread. Look for what the bread means. Now look at how the people respond. Verse 28. They say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They go, okay. So then, how do we make the bread? Okay, Jesus. You say, don't ask you to make the bread, but to look for what the bread points to. So then, how do we make the bread? Like, they're not really getting it, are they? They're still looking for physical bread. Verse 29, Jesus says, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. He says, You want the bread that I have to give to you? Then this is what you do. Believe in Me. See, that's what the signs are supposed to point to, right? The purpose isn't the bread. It's the man who made the bread. Jesus says, This is what you need to do. Believe in Me. You can see what Jesus is doing here, can't you? The crowds are confused. They don't understand what Jesus is offering. They don't understand the purpose of the signs. So Jesus is trying to make it clear, the sign points to me. If you're going to get the purpose of the feeding of the 5,000, that's what you have to do. You have to believe in me. And if you believe, then I will give you everlasting bread. I'll give you eternal bread. Verses 30 to 31, the crowds respond. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate man in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Catch that. Jesus is saying, stop looking for physical bread. Look for me. I am the point of the sign. Look for me. And the people literally just responded by saying, but how will we know that it's you? Hey, we have an idea. Why don't you make us some bread to show us? This is ridiculous. Like if I'm Jesus, I'm face palming at this point. How stubborn, how slow of heart and mind can you get? 
Jesus, though, he is more patient than me, and he makes another attempt. He explains again in verses 32 to 33, and I'm just going to paraphrase these verses. He says, you're not getting it. Moses didn't give you anything. God did, right? Right? This is what you need. You don't need manna. You need the one who makes the manna, the one who has made and sustains all life. And you need the one whom he has sent to give you this life eternally forever. Not for a day or for a month or for a year. Forever. Manna can't do that, right? Manna doesn't give you eternal life. As a matter of fact, the people of Israel had to go out and collect it every day because it's spoiled. You need bread that's better than that, Jesus says. You need bread that isn't going to bring you... You need bread that's going to bring you into fellowship with God so that you can live forever. This is what the sign is supposed to point to, right? The greater provision that Jesus has to offer. So what do the people say now? Verse 34. Sir, give us this bread always. Always. Give us this bread always. You see, this? they're still thinking... At the end of the thing, when they say this response, give us this bread always. They're still thinking that Jesus is talking about some kind of physical bread that he can dispense to them and give them on like a consistent basis to give them this eternal life. He's going to give it to them today and then tomorrow and then the day after that. And this is what's going to help them live forever. This is what they mean when they say give us this bread always. They still don't get it. So Jesus says in verse 35, I am The bread of life. Whoever comes to me, to me, shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me, in me, shall never thirst. He just flat out says, it's me, guys. Don't you understand what I'm saying to you? I'm the bread of life. I'm the point of the sign. You believe in me. I'm the one who will give you eternal life. It's not the bread. It's me. In fact, in the following discourse, he even goes on to say, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I'm the one who gives you life, Jesus says. Now, not coincidentally, Jesus also goes on to explain in this discourse that the reason why they've not believed in Him is because it's not been granted to them by the Father. This is kind of the point, actually, of John 6. Even after the sign, even after Jesus explains the meaning of the sign, eight, nine, ten different ways, even then the people still cannot believe or even understand the sign. And the reason, according to verses 44 of this chapter and verse 65, is because no one can come to Jesus unless it's been granted to them by the Father. So why do I bring this up? I bring this up in order to make a point. When it comes to the gospel, even Jesus could be misunderstood. Even Jesus could be misunderstood. You look at this passage, and it's clear that this people are sold out on the prosperity gospel, right? That's what this is. And we're not even talking soft prosperity. They're sold out on the hard prosperity gospel. They think Jesus is going to give them food. But that's not because of anything that Jesus has said, right? Quite the contrary. Jesus is actually telling them repeatedly, no, you don't understand. This isn't about food. But they keep coming back and asking, yeah, no, but really, how do we get the bread? No, come on, Jesus, just tell us. And the reason for this, Jesus explains, is because it hasn't been granted to them to understand and believe. Their inability to perceive the point of the feeding of the 5,000 is rooted in human depravity in the eternal plan and purposes of God. 
This means that it doesn't matter what Jesus says, they're not going to get it. They're going to keep saying, no, really, Jesus, where's the bread? No matter how many times he repeats it. And I bring this up because as we move forward this morning and we continue to explore these next few false gospels, I want to make it clear. You don't have to have a false teacher in order to believe in a false gospel. False teachers can certainly help, but you don't need one in order to misunderstand the gospel message. Even Jesus was misunderstood by the crowds. They came to him believing in a false gospel, and they did it despite his efforts to make the gospel clear. And that matters to us for a couple reasons. First, I think it means you shouldn't necessarily assume that someone is a false teacher because some of the people under their ministry have assumed a false gospel. Obviously, that shouldn't be the mark of their ministry. Given enough time, they should be able to clarify the gospel enough that the false converts will eventually abandon their ministry, actually just as the crowds do here with Jesus in John 6. By the time Jesus is done clarifying, they leave. So that should probably happen. But even still, it's possible for someone to proclaim the right message and be misunderstood. We have to get that clear. And I say that because I'm going to call out some false gospels this morning. And while I'm not going to name names, I think you'll probably start to associate some of these gospels with particular teachers based on their followers. And I want to make clear that I'm not necessarily saying that the problem is with the teacher as we evaluate these false false gospels. At least not in the sense that I'd call them a false teacher who's proclaiming a false gospel. I think there are some teachers that proclaim the gospel well, more or less, but they don't do a great job of describing sanctification. And this can lead to some of their followers actually misunderstanding the gospel itself. I wouldn't call these men false teachers, i call them imperfect ones. In other words, there's nothing especially diabolical about their motives. They're not even necessarily proclaiming a wrong gospel. They've misunderstood how to communicate various aspects of the Christian life, and this in turn creates confusion around the gospel. Now this misunderstanding can still, can still unintentionally inoculate people in the church. It's not just, it's just not intentional. The problem is perhaps even more with the listener than it is with the speaker. So I want to make that clear. As I name these false gospels, I'm not trying to take aim at any particular individuals in an attempt to label them and their teaching false. I'm just saying, when you see someone who believes this thing, they've believed in a false gospel. The point is less with the teacher and it's more with the student. And then second, I bring this passage up because I want you to understand. I want you to really get this as we go through this. You're not immune to belief in a false gospel just because you learn from someone who proclaims the true gospel. Jesus himself could be your teacher and you could still get it wrong. And the reason is because that's how the human heart works apart from the grace of God. We don't need help at being deceived. We'll do it ourselves, even when the scribes and the Pharisees aren't there to do it for us. So again, you really need to examine yourself here. Don't just assume that because I get up here in this series and say, all these other Gospels are false, that you have by necessity believed in the right one. Even when the truth is proclaimed clearly and accurately, self-deception is still possible. So again, examine yourselves as we go through this series. Explore your motives and desires for following Christ. Make sure that the reason you're following Him is the same reason that He proclaimed. Make sure that you're seeking Him because you're after the signs and not the bread. You're after what the signs point to and not because you ate of the loaves and were filled. 
I say this because these next four Gospels, I think it's very easy to fall into them, even under good and sound teaching. I think perhaps even most especially under good and sound teaching, it's possible to substitute one of these Gospels for the true one. It's not really hard to hear good teaching about sanctification, then kind of retranslate it in order to uh, conform your heart to one of these points. So really watch out here. Continue to ask yourself as we go, in what gospel have I believed? Well, that's probably the longest introduction to a sermon you've ever heard in your life. Uh, But that's okay. I think it's needed if we're going to process these next few gospels rightly. For time's sake, we're going to look at just two of these false gospels today. Uh, I do think it's an important series that we're in right now, um, given where we live. So I don't want to rush through this. I I want you to really understand these false gospels and, and let their message and their errors really sink in so that you know how to interact with them. This is the spiritual air that we breathe in southwest Missouri. So you need to be equipped to interact with these ideas both defensively and offensively. You need to be able to defend yourself against their influence as well as be able to distinguish the difference as you articulate the gospel to others. So we're going to take our time here. Uh, Just so you know, I didn't plan that when we first started Matthew 23, uh, 13 to 15, uh, but here we are. So let's go ahead and get started with our first false gospel this morning. And just as a heads up, there's I want to make clear too, there's no particular sequence or order to these false gospels moving forward. I know the first two were really related, uh, but that won't be the case uh, from here on out. There may be some overlap. I think we'll see that. Uh, There'll be some overlap with these Gospels uh, going forward, but they're not based on the exact same error as the prosperity and the soft prosperity Gospel were. So, that being said, the first false Gospel on this list this morning is this. The moral Gospel. The moral Gospel. I also like to call this one the family values Gospel, uh, or or even uh, the full house Gospel. Uh, You guys remember the show Full House, right? Used to play Friday nights as part of ABC's TGIF programming. Well, if you remember that show, then you know that it was a show that tried to communicate uh, wholesome family values. That's why they put it on ABC's TGIF programming, the Friday night programming. TGIF has actually designed, it was designed to be a whole slate of shows that a family could sit down to on a Friday night and watch together without being worried about what might show up on their television. They could sit down and watch the show, even trusting that some type of edifying moral lesson would be taught as they enjoyed the exploits of the Tanner family or the Winslows or the Lamberts and the Fosters or the Matthews, uh, depending on what shows you watched. Basically, Full House was a show that was designed to be uplifting and moral. uh, And most of all, it was designed to be safe. This is what I think of when I think of the Full House gospel at work. I see families who are fleeing to the church not because they want to know Jesus Christ, but because they want to be safe. They see Jesus as a refuge from the moral decline of our society, or they see the church as a good environment to raise their kids in. For example, whenever you see a couple couple that says to themselves, as they're about to have kids for the first time, well, we're about to have kids, I guess that means that we should start going to church. That's when you see the full house gospel on display. That's when you see the moral gospel on display. In their mind, what Jesus has to offer is a pure and wholesome lifestyle. He teaches their kids how to be good, respectable people. That's the good news of the gospel to this couple. Jesus is really nothing more to them than a moral refuge amid a cultural storm. Likewise, whenever you see churches promote themselves on the basis of their fun-filled, activity-laden, dynamic children's ministries, or when they go out of their way to label themselves to outsiders as family-friendly, 
That's when I think you start to see the full house gospel being communicated. Now again, you can probably think of several places like this. And going back to what I said a moment ago, I'm not saying that the people who would communicate this would say that this is the gospel. Most of the ones that I've seen would actually have a pretty articulate understanding of the gospel if you were to sit down with them and ask them point blank, what is the gospel? All I'm saying is that whether advertently or inadvertently, that's what's often being communicated to outsiders when they do this. This is how outsiders interpret that kind of language or promotion. When they're showing up, they're not showing up for Jesus. They're showing up for the pure living, the wholesome environment. They're showing up for the family values. So I wouldn't go so far as to necessarily call these men false teachers. I think many of them know Christ. I think many of them love Christ. And they want to use any means at their disposal to make Him known to others. And because of that, this sort of method is is often modeled in the church. And perhaps because they aren't the most discerning, they'll adopt it because they think it's a legitimate means of, of reaching people for the gospel. I'm not saying that those kind of men don't love Jesus or that they don't intend to preach the gospel. I'm just saying that they're doing it in a way that's sloppy. And that's often sending the wrong message. So they're not hypocrites, right? How they're acting is consistent with what they believe. They're not doing this intentionally. They're not hypocrites. They're just poor communicators. Again, they're, they're not false teachers. They're bad teachers. Now, some of these men may be false teachers too, right? If they're doing that kind of marketing, because like the Pharisees, they want to receive praise from men, and so they'll do anything possible to have a big church even kind of distort the gospel a bit, throw something else in there that is going to pull people in. Well, then they are false teachers. They're knowingly spreading a false message for their own personal advancement. Those men are exactly who Jesus is talking about when He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. So I want to make this clear as I point this false gospel out. I don't think we can paint with a broad brush and label anyone who proclaims this sort of thing a, quote, false teacher. I think some are false teachers, but I think many are just confused teachers. Brothers, actually, who may have picked up this way of doing things from false teachers. This is why I keep saying, even if you've believed the gospel, you have to ask yourself, has one of these false gospels affected your thinking? There are some men out there who, I believe, through lack of discernment, are unintentionally communicating a gospel they don't believe in. Their message, the message that they intend to communicate is being lost in translation by the methods they picked up from these other kinds of teachers, and so people end up hearing the wrong thing. This doesn't make you a false teacher. Being misunderstood doesn't make you a false teacher. It just makes you a bad one. And I think we've all been there, right? We're all guilty of garbling the message from time to time. Now, just as we saw with these various forms of, the various forms of the prosperity gospel that we explored last week, you can not only see the appeal of this kind of a gospel. But you can see where this idea comes from in the Scripture. There's some basis for this kind of thinking in Scripture. In other words, this concept, this moral gospel, family values gospel, however you want to think of it, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. There's a reason why people confuse this kind of thing for Christianity. After all, it's very clear, it's very clear that Jesus intends for us to be sanctified. In fact, He doesn't just intend for us to be sanctified, to progressively grow in our holiness, but He demands it. I think it's fair to say that it is even the purpose of your justification. 
Titus 2, 11-14, a passage that you hear me quote very often, says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works." Likewise, Ephesians 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, Paul says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen, Jesus died not just for your salvation, not just for your justification, but for your sanctification as well. Again, I've said this before, but the problem with the world around us is not that people are going to hell. People will suffer in hell for eternity and that will not be seen as a blemish on God's creation when that happens. Hell is just. It's fair. Hell isn't the problem. Believe it or not, when we study the Scripture, what we see is that hell is actually part of the solution to the problem. The problem with the world is my sin. It's your sin. The problem with the world is that God, the perfectly good and just and righteous and loving Creator of this universe, is not honored as God. Worship, or rather the lack thereof, that's the problem with this world. And Jesus has been sent into the world to fix that problem. Both through the salvation of those who turn to God in repentance and faith, and through the judgment of those who do not. So it's fair to say that our growth in holiness, our eventual glorification, when we will sin against God no more, that's all central to the gospel. However, this should not be confused simply with, quote, pure or moral living. I'm drawing a fine line here, but it's a very important line, so let me say this one more time. Sanctification is not to be confused simply with pure or moral living. You see, sanctification is primarily a worship issue. We just saw Jesus explain this in Matthew 22. What is the fulfillment of the law? What is the purpose of God's commands? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The second great commandment is like that one, love your neighbor as yourself. As an extension of your love for God, love those who are made in the image of God. So do you understand? God does want us to be sanctified, but we should not think that this sanctification can be defined simply by our actions. This is what I mean when I say that sanctification isn't about living simply a pure or moral lifestyle. You can have people who don't do, quote, bad things, who still don't love God. And they're not sanctified. The point of our justification, the point of our, justifi- of our sanctification, the point of Jesus' death, which accomplishes these things, is to take enemies of God, is to take those who are hostile to God and hate Him, and reconcile them back into a relationship with God so that they can love and enjoy Him and glorify Him through their love and enjoyment of Him forever and ever. In other words, God is the goal of the gospel. He's the point. Delighting in Him, enjoying Him, that's what Jesus makes possible through His death. And it's what He demands of everyone who will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, will those who love God live righteously? Will they grow in their, as, they, as they grow in their love for God, will they become increasingly pure and holy in their actions? Absolutely, right? 
Again, love for one's neighbor naturally flows out of a love for God. So if a person is growing in their love for God, they're going to grow in these other things as well. However, this is still a byproduct of the gospel. It's not the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is not simply that He makes us good people. It's not that He gives us a wholesome and pure lifestyle to live. Though again, I think we could point to books like Proverbs and see that there is blessing in living righteously. No, the good news of Jesus Christ is that through the perfect life and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, we can, by grace, through faith, be reconciled to God. We can have relationship with, be in fellowship with God. That is the good news of the gospel. We get to know God. And if that's not what you want, if you don't care whether or not you know God, if all you want is something that you think is, that He's going to give you rather than Him, then you don't, have, you don't want what Jesus is selling. Because that's it. That's what He's selling. That's what He died for. Reconciliation with God. And this is where the family values gospel, the full house gospel, goes wrong. The one who comes to Jesus, because they see Him as a refuge from the cultural chaos that surrounds us, they're coming for the wrong reason. They're really little better than the crowds that ask Jesus to give them more bread. They're asking for the sanctification that Jesus provides instead of the sanctifier who provides it. Just like the people ask for the manna instead of the manna maker. The one who comes to Jesus because they want to, quote, clean up their life, they're the same way. They're seeking an idol. Now, they're seeking a socially acceptable idol, but it's an idol nonetheless. Jesus didn't die simply so you could, quote, clean your life up and enjoy the fruits of righteousness. That's all secondary. He died to reconcile sinners to God. He dies so the enemies of God can be turned into worshipers. If that's not why you're seeking Jesus, if you're not seeking Him in worship, to know God and be in fellowship with Him, then you're seeking Him for the wrong reasons. So again, ask yourself, in what gospel have I believed? What do I think is the good news of the gospel? Is it the practical righteousness that Jesus provides? Or is it the imputed righteousness that He provides? So that I can be brought in fellowship with God Himself. And now there are some other errors in the moral gospel that I could point out if we had time, but that's the biggie. It substitutes righteousness and the blessings that it can provide for the real prize in the gospel, which is God Himself. So that's the, the third false gospel in our series, uh, the moral or the family values gospel. If you want to get cute with it, you can call it the full house gospel. Uh, the fourth false gospel is this. Number four, the therapeutic gospel. The therapeutic gospel, or as I like to call it, the Freudian gospel. As the name implies, according to this gospel, Jesus is more or less our divine therapist. He's there to help us with our troubles. He's there to help us feel better about ourselves. He's there to make us happy. If this sounds at all like the soft prosperity gospels, because they're very closely related. For example, perhaps the most famous proponent of this kind of a gospel was the late Robert Schuller, who hosted the Hour of Power television program for around 40 years. And I'd put him into both categories. He taught both ideas, that God means for us to thrive and that He means for us to do this by feeling good about ourselves and thinking positively and overcoming our obstacles through the power of positive thinking. The ideas are are kind of lumped together, success and success through the power of self-esteem and positive thinking. So that's how Jesus gives us success, by helping us feel good about ourselves, according to Robert Schuller. This is how these two Gospels can overlap each other. 
In fact, this gospel can also tend to overlap the moral or family values gospel when righteousness is promoted as a way of feeling good about ourselves. For example, when you hear forgiveness passed off as this thing that helps you be at peace in life, when you hear people equate holding a grudge as bondage, and forgiveness as the thing that will set you free, and they do this in a Christian context, then this is the moral gospel transforming into the therapeutic gospel. Forgiveness, in this example, is a kind of therapy. It helps you release the hurts of the past so you can feel good about yourself. When you hear someone say, you know, we've got to love ourselves before we love other people, so learn to see how much God thinks of you, how wonderful He thinks you are, how special He thinks you are, because only then are you going to be able to see, to have the ability to love other people. Once again, you see the overlap between the moral and the therapeutic Gospels. Only this time it's kind of flipped. In that example, we don't try to be good people in order to feel good about ourselves. Instead, we feel good about ourselves in order to be good people. So you can see that the interrelation of these two, these two Gospels can have, which comes first, morals or therapy. It just depends on what the ultimate goal is. The one produces the other. Regardless of the overlap, however, what this Gospel teaches is that Jesus helps us feel good about ourselves. Whether that's something He does on the way to helping us prosper, or, if, or on the way to helping us good, be good people, or whether that happiness is an end in and of itself, the point is Jesus died to make us happy. He died to help me feel good about myself, to feel good about my life. Jesus is my divine therapist. And again, there's some truth in this statement. You look at, you look at books like the Proverbs, and Scripture does indicate that generally speaking, the person who lives righteously is going to live a more calm, more peaceful, more fulfilling and rewarding life. You look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and it includes joy, and peace, and love, positive attitudes, rewarding and fulfilling emotions are a result of the gospel. Again, you go back to what I said just a moment ago, and you'll remember that I said that worship is what God wants from us. I think we can even say it's what Jesus died for. Well, guess what? That's a feeling. That's an emotion. Now, it's not only a feeling or or, or an emotion. You can worship in action even when you don't feel like it, when you exercise faith. Worship... Again, quite simply proclaims the superiority of God. And you can do that whether you feel like it or not. But when you consider that God ultimately wants you to worship Him from the heart, from our innermost being, then I think it's fair to say that that should include our emotions as well, if at all possible. In fact, the ones who only pay lip service to God with their actions, while despising Him in their heart, God hates, the Scripture says. He does not accept that kind of worship. He delights in the joyful giver, doesn't he? You take all that into consideration, and I don't think it's entirely out of bounds to say that Jesus died for our happiness. In the words of the the 17th century English cleric Jeremy Taylor, God has, quote, threatened horrible things to us if we would not be happy. Yes, God does mean for us to be happy. He demands our happiness, actually. But the question is, happiness in what? We saw that with the prosperity gospel, the error was with the object of our happiness. It promises happiness, but in the wrong thing and in the wrong time. It promises happiness in material things rather than in Christ, and then it pulls up the fullest experience of this happiness here into the present as we enjoy the blessing to be found in the riches and experiences of this life instead of the enjoyment that we find in Christ once our sin is abolished in heaven. 
the therapeutic gospel falters in much the same way. It overlaps with the prosperity gospel and that it brings the good news into our hopes and expectations for this life primarily. And then it overlaps with both the prosperity and moral gospels by swapping out the object of our affections for something less than what Jesus offered. Happiness comes as I learn to forgive or as I learn how to love. It's found, in a, it's found in a mindset that Jesus helps me to achieve. Or it comes as a result of the success or the moral standing that I gain through the power of positive thinking. Whatever the case, the point is that Jesus is the means that I use in order to obtain the thing that makes me happy instead of Himself being the thing that makes me happy. This is no different than the crowds coming to Jesus and saying, will you give us more bread? Jesus is standing there saying, no, you don't understand. I'm the bread. And, and, and the people are saying, you know, so you're, so you're saying like, if we believe in you, you'll give us bread? They just can't understand that Jesus is not only the means of our salvation, but the object. He's the point. That's what the therapeutic gospel gets wrong. <clears throat> it plays a kind of, of spiritual shell game where it takes the joy that you are promised in the gospel and then through a series of maneuvers and sleight of hand gets you to seek that joy in the wrong object, in an illusion. Again, it's not wrong to want to be happy. God does want you to be happy. I mean, the gospel is good news. We're supposed to rejoice over it. God wants you to be happy. However, He wants you to be happy in Him. In Him, not in idols. And just to be clear, that's not contrary to God's glory. God acts to glorify Himself in salvation, but this isn't in any way contrary to our happiness. Rather, that's how He's glorified. He's glorified as we are satisfied, as we rejoice in Him. He's glorified as we see His grace to us in Christ and marvel at it and give Him praise. That's not how proponents of the therapeutic gospel preach happiness. For them, Jesus is not the reason for our happiness. He's just the means. He's the spiritual guru, the divine therapist that shows us how to find true happiness through forgiveness or love or through a positive self-image. And, and by the way, while we're on the subject, let me just say that you will never find happiness by thinking much of yourself. Like, as counterintuitive as this may seem, you will only ever find happiness by thinking much of God, and that's not by being happy with yourself. It doesn't happen through a positive self-image. It actually happens as you see yourself for what you really are, which is an unrighteous, unworthy, despicable sinner who just so happens to be saved by the grace of God. It's grace that magnifies the glory of God to the point that you find true and lasting joy. And ironically enough, that can only, you can only get a sense of God's grace when you have a low self-image. When you see yourself as a sinner, unworthy of God's grace. Again, this is the deceit of the therapeutic gospel. It promises happiness, but then it tells you that the way you'll be happy is by doing the exact opposite thing that God says will make you happy. It's a total lie. Anyways, this is how the, th the therapeutic gospel works. It really presents Jesus not as a savior, but as nothing more than a teacher. He's an especially gifted rabbi. If he saves us from anything, it's from our own inner demons, not, as the scriptures proclaim, the wrath of God.
So in a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. Uh, Jesus instituted this commemorative act just a few hours before His crucifixion, telling His disciples as He took the bread, this is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And then as He took the cup, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. When we take this table, I want you to understand that it proclaims a couple of critical truths. First of all, it proclaims the ratification of the new covenant. That's what Jesus means when He says that the cup poured out for us is the new covenant in His blood. It means that through His death, Jesus has made the new covenant possible. If you go back into the Old Testament, what you find is that the new covenant is is really the granddaddy of all the covenants. It's the one that promises an ultimate restoration of the planet. It's the one that promises the Holy Spirit indwelling us and causing us to walk in God's commands as our hearts are transformed to love God. In short, if you want to think of it this way, the human flourishing the happiness, the righteousness that are promised in the prosperity, moral, and therapeutic Gospels, they're all actually right there in the New Covenant. And yet, the second thing that this table proclaims is that Jesus had to die to make these things possible. Again, as you go back into the Old Testament and ask why this is, this is what you find. It proclaims that all of mankind is in rebellion against God and worthy only of His wrath and judgment. It proclaims that God once dwelled with man and blessed him, but because of this rebellion and sin, he has withdrawn. And one day he will judge all mankind for our sins. That's really where the story starts, with mankind's rebellion against God. But then the scripture also proclaims that God desired to show mercy to mankind as a manifestation of his grace. And so God promised to send a conqueror, a deliverer, a savior, who would redeem us, not from our poverty, or from our bad feelings, or something like that. No, but someone who would save us from our sins. From the wrath of God, actually. God promised to send a Savior, if you want to think of it this way, He promised to send a Savior who would save us from Himself. God is a just God who must punish sin, and so He promised to send a Savior who would cleanse our sins and pour out God's Spirit and allow God to dwell with man once more so that we may experience the blessing of His presence again. Now the problem, once again, is that God is a just God who cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And so in order for God to forgive sins, He must first punish sins. And what the Gospel proclaims is that He has done this in the death of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus talks about His body being broken for us. His blood being poured out for us. God must punish sin. He simply can't forget it. He must punish it. For He's a just and righteous God. Now, God is willing to allow someone to die as a substitute for sinners in their place, but whoever does that has to be sinlessly perfect, since otherwise they'd only be suffering for their own sin. Of course, no man has ever qualified for that position save for one, Jesus Christ. It was God the Son come in human flesh to live a perfect life and die on behalf of sinners. So when Jesus says, this is my body which is broken for you, when He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, this is what He's saying. He's saying, I'm offering myself up as a sacrifice for your sins so that you can be forgiven by God and God's Spirit be poured out on you so that God may return once again with His favor and bless you once more. This is the Gospel. 
That Jesus died on behalf of sinners in order to reconcile them to God. He died so that we might enjoy relationship and fellowship with God once more. And all that a person must do to accept this good news is believe on Jesus in faith. Turn to Him in repentance and faith, crowning Him as the Lord of your life, and trusting in Him as your Savior, and you will be saved. The Lord's table commemorates all of this. It proclaims the gospel to us every time we take it. And so the question that you should be asking yourself as we take this meal together is, is this what I mean when I take this? Is this why I'm seeking Jesus? What the Lord's table communicates is that what you really need is not the manna that perishes. You need the food that endures to eternal life. You need the bread of God who comes down from heaven to give life to the world. What you really need isn't a teacher or another lawgiver. What you need is a Savior who can cleanse you of your sin and pour the Holy Spirit out on your hearts. What you need isn't another idol, whether that be external in the created things you enjoy or internal in your high view of self. No, what you need is a glorious God who through His provision and grace manifests His love and His power and His wisdom in such a way that you take delight in Him. And what Jesus does at the cross is make that possible. His death reconciles you to that God. Is that the hope that you're expressing as you take the Lord's table? Is that what you're longing for? When Paul says that whenever we take this table, we, quote, proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Are you longing for the bread of life? Are you longing for the return of your Savior, of Jesus? Or are you longing for something else, something that you think Jesus can provide for you? As we close this morning, let's take a few moments to reflect on that, each one of us, as we prepare for the Lord's table together. You know, normally we take a moment right before the Lord's table to reflect on our relationship with God and repent of any known sin before we take the ordinances. Instead, I, wanted us to do, I want us to do that as we close this sermon today. So if you would, please go ahead and bow your head here. Of course, we know that the Scripture, from the Scripture, that God is faithful and true. We know that there is no deceit in Him. So as we reflect here this morning, that's not what we're calling into question. We're not calling God into question. We're calling ourselves into question. It says in Jeremiah 17.9 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our problem is that not only do false teachers surround us and mean to inoculate us to the truth with their false teaching, but we'll do this thing ourselves even without their help. Again, even Jesus was misunderstood by the crowds, right? We're all capable of doing this, of twisting the gospel for our own ends. So as we prepare to take the Lord's table here in a few moments, And as you reflect on the meaning of that meal, just take a few moments here in your seat and ask yourself, am I taking this meal in a worthy way? Is Jesus the one that I hunger for? Is He the one that I long for? Even take a moment to ask Jesus to show you, to reveal to you, whether or not you have allowed a false gospel to twist and distort your understanding of your relationship with Him. Just sit there, we can just pray, kind of just to yourself here for a moment, reflect on that together.